have a message today that's a little bit different than probably maybe other messages. You may not feel any, any different. It's me talking, so it may not really have that much difference, but I had a little bit of a different way I was thinking about going during this Advent season on this weekend, but I really felt drawn back and compelled to, and not knowing why, and still not knowing why, I felt called back to talk a little bit about the dynamic of relationships as it relates to this Christmas season. And I will tell you this, I believe that COVID being cooped up in our homes for a long period of time brought to the surface in a lot of families, a lot of homes, in the relationship of children to parent or the relationship of spouse to spouse, different thoughts, different feelings, different emotions than maybe would have been experienced had we been able to continue to pass as ships in the night without having that up-close encounter and being together as much. It's also possible that the shorter nights or the shorter days and longer nights of the winter play into this in some way as well. Uh, because it brings us into our homes just a little bit more than what we normally would be in our homes. So we have to think of what we're going to do because we can't just run outside. I mean, like 6.15, I'm ready to go to bed and I'm a night owl. It's like, it's already 10.30, right? It's like, sheesh, it, it, you know, it fools us as our body clocks adjust, right? And so we kind of think about that, and we, we are then in the house for an extra couple of hours longer than we normally would have been with whoever it is we live with, whoever it is. And so really one of the things that blows my mind is we think round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, and we have these warm coo coo, kind of like dove sounds and baby cooing and baby powder smells in our, in our Western world thinking, when the reality is... That first Christmas sounded much more like a scandal than a beautiful nativity. Did you ever think about that? It sounded a whole lot more like a scandal than a beautiful nativity. To be married, there were three stages that Mary and Joseph had to go through. One was called the Mohar. The Mohar is where the father of the, of the groom gives a large sum of money to the father of the bride, because the father of the bride is losing a worker, contributor to the household, and gives a large offering to the bride's father. Then there is the matan phase, the next phase, and that's where the groom gives a bigger price, maybe something we might think of spending a, a lot of money on a wedding ring or something like that. That would come into play there. And at this point in this second phase, this is when the groom's family gave to the bride some wonderful and more expensive gifts that might be given. This is when that happened. They're still not married. Then they would have a third phase, which is called the ketubah. The ketubah is a phase in the, in the relationship where the groom has to exchange vows. And here's what he's doing when he does that. It's more about him. It's not as much about the bride. This is kind of weird. In the Bible time, it's a little different than now, right? In this part of the Bible time. And so here's what would happen. He would promise that he would provide a house, provide a living, and that he would love the bride as his wife. When Jesus gave the parable about the, the uh, 
ten virgins. You notice they were, they were doing whatever they had to do to get ready, but they said, the groom is going to come and get you when he is ready. So what would happen is Joseph in this case would be going and getting a house ready. He'd be going to get everything set up so he would be able to come back when he was ready and he would have to say to Mary, I'm ready now for the wedding. And then they would have the marriage ceremony official where at that official ceremony they would have their guests there, they would have their party. And our wedding ceremonies today in the Western world follow the ketubah model, that last part of that, probably where we get our wedding ceremonies 2,000 years later. This is where Mary and Joseph were. They had not yet gotten married where they're living together. They had not consummated their marriage. And so here they are in this relationship. And in Luke chapter 1, and I'm reading through Luke with you, and as we read that together each day, you read a chapter. Today I read chapter 5 because it's December the 5th, and so we're reading the whole gospel of Luke. We can do it. And so while reading that, You'll read through there in chapter 1 that the angel, the angelic messenger is really called, the angelic messenger would come and speak to Mary. And the angel would say to Mary, you're going you're gonna to have a child. You're going to have this child. Her family had heard about this. Joseph had heard about this type of thing before. They knew there would be a virgin birth. They knew this type of thing was going to happen someday along the way. They knew it was possible. But she knows she's already at this point in the wedding relationship. She knows that it's not likely she's going to be getting married and, and having a baby that wasn't born by Joseph. She says, how shall this be in verse 34 of the passage? She said, how in the world can this be? And the answer comes back that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Verse 37 of that passage says it this way. The angel says, uh, this, this is going to happen. And with God, nothing is impossible. That is a powerful passage right there. With God, nothing is impossible. You know that? That's pretty amazing. The thing you're praying about, the thing you're thinking about, the thing you're working through, the thing that is in your life right now, it says, with God, nothing is impossible. With us, things are impossible. With God, nothing essential is impossible. And then notice in verse 38 of Luke 1, Mary says, well, I'm the Lord's servant. May, may his word be fulfilled as spoken today. In other words, I'm okay. If, if this is the way this is going to be, then this is all right. If this is what God wants, this is all right. Now, we're talking about relationships. It's important to know that she has that attitude about this important matter in her life because if she has not settled her God issue, she can't parent well. You're a hybrid parent until you settle the God issue in your life. Somia Martian put it this way. She said, oh, Lord, I pray that you would give me a pure and faithful heart like Mary had, a heart that is immediately willing to believe you and receive all that you have. What a prayer. What an incredible prayer. And then your Bible says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, then you'd think she'd run over to Joseph or text him real quick. Doesn't have text. Doesn't have a call, can't email, can't even, you know, really adequately snail mail. Postal system not working quite like, you know, so what's she going to do? Immediately it says that she leaves there and she travels to her cousin Elizabeth's house. This is important to know this. She goes over to Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth lives about 10 miles from Bethlehem. Joseph lives in Bethlehem. That's where he's staying. 
Somewhere on the way from where Mary was to where Mary goes, she's going, to, she's going to stop by and talk to Joseph. We don't know if she talks to him on the way. We don't know if she gets Elizabeth and they together go. But they have the conversation with Joseph and says, uh, I'm going to be having a baby. You what? I'm going to be having a baby. Yeah, God put this baby in me. Joseph was the first one to doubt the virgin birth. He didn't believe her. He didn't want anything to do with this. Matthew chapter 1, read just a little bit ago by Pastor Melanie, says this in verse 19. He wanted to quietly divorce her. He wants to put an end to this because he says no. If he divorces her, she's going to still be having this child. And so in this whole process, it's going to be public humiliation for her. Public humiliation. She's not with Joseph. He ended the marriage. I thought you were getting married. Well, we didn't get married. Public humiliation for her. If Joseph goes ahead and marries her, it's going to be looking like he got with her beforehand, which was considered taboo. And in that whole process, maybe somebody else, she was with somebody else. So he's overlooking that. And that would have been considered humiliation to him at the wedding altar. We've got a dilemma. I mentioned something about the Christmas story being just a little bit like a scandal. Kind of seems like, it feels like it could be a little bit that way, doesn't it? And you thought your life was messed up. This was a divine interruption. And it wasn't easy to deal with. He wanted to put her away. And verse 19 of Matthew 1 says this as well. Listen to this. He has those thoughts of putting her away. And he was a righteous man. So he's not just some unholy guy just getting all mad. He is a righteous man and he's looking at this. Now, every one of us, if you're, if you're alive, you're able to think. If you've had any time awake this morning, coffee or no, you've been thinking this morning. As a matter of fact, a report of the National Science Foundation some time ago said the average person, the average person has 2,000 thoughts a day. The person who is a deeper thinker has about 50,000 thoughts a day. When you receive news of something that is traumatic, your thoughts go in all kinds of different directions. I kind of liken it to going out on a playground. When you go out on a playground, You've got a swing that'll swing you back and forth, back and forth. You're considering this, that, this, that, this, that. Or seesaw, up, down, up, down. You're just all over the place. Or a merry-go-round, round, 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 round. And you can't quit thinking those thoughts that are happening right around you. Joseph, in my mind, in this moment, has this whole situation going over in his head and he's saying, what do I want to do with this? I, I think I don't want any part of this. I want to quietly, I don't want, I, he's a righteous man. I want to quietly divorce this situation. I, I want to get some distance between me and that, between that and where I am now. And some of you today might be sitting here having some of these very thoughts this morning, not because of this story, but because of your story.
because of your own situation. Sometimes it's not possible to put a relationship back together as it was. Humpty Dumpty has fallen from the wall. It's just not possible. But a lot of times it is. And sometimes it is. And it might be in yours. I don't want to dredge up thoughts of negative stuff that don't need to be dealt with. But let me share with you some words from some people who said they put things back together. These are important words. There are three responses. I'll give you the first. said this. They sought counseling that helped them understand what had happened and what it would take to heal the damage if, they're rela- if both in the relationship were willing to try. You both have to be willing to give it an honest effort in that case. And where it's possible to get it back together. The second said this. They made a commitment to repair the marriage. And it included ending an extramarital affair. Both parties were committed to making it work. And the one that had been unfaithful had to make a promise, basically, of accountability that they would never create such an injury again. And the third, the injured spouse, the injured spouse, injured spouse, it's important to know, practice forgiveness, deciding to see both themselves and their spouse as flawed human beings. And listen to this, and not exact retribution. It's hard not to exact retribution when you break off a very significant relationship. But Joseph taught a righteous person how to do it, if you're going to do it. Do it quietly, and don't be mean. When you get mean, you're not righteous. When you get mean, you're feeding the life of the devil. Let me say this to you about pretty quiet in here, but I'm not yelling at you. I'm just talking with you as your pastor. Marriage research demonstrates a futility of unfaithfulness in marriage. Of those who destroyed their marriage, statistics tell us, those who destroyed their marriage with someone else, 80% grew to regret their decision. Of the 10% that married the other person, that they had the affair with, 70% of them got a divorce. If you do the simple math, it means they had a 3% chance of survival with the person they were hooking up with and now connecting with as their spouse, the new spouse. I don't think you'd take a parachute if you had a 3% chance of flying to the ground. I don't think you'd get in a boat to sail across the ocean if you had a 3% chance of making it to the other side. Can I get a witness in the house somewhere? I don't think so. I don't think you get in a plane and fly somewhere if you thought, well, I have a 3% chance. I got great 3%. I'm going to make it. No, you're not. You're going to crash and burn, dude. You are down. So there are a lot of thoughts that go through our mind. The merry-go-round is swirling. The swing set, the teeter-totter, it's all doing its thing. Solomon Goresi, he had these thoughts going through his head. He thought, if I had just married the right one, Dadgummit, if I'd have married the right one, it'd all be good. It'd all be working out right now. If I just married, you ever had that thought go through your head? If I just, well, when they burn the toast, we do have those thoughts go through our head. Everybody's had that thought go through their head. If you're married, you've had the thought go through your head. All right, it happens. And so you're saying, okay, grief, who is this animal? And you say something like, now, I never said that about Pam, but I'm sure she may have said that about me. Suleiman said that about his wife from Amir, Turkey. They've been married 21 years, and after a six-month 
court battle of divorce. He signed online in one of the online opportunities to find somebody. There were 2,000, 2,000 ladies online. He surely would find out of them the one that he was supposed to have. Well, his, his now ex, she signed on as well. And they found out when they discovered who it was they were most perfectly matched with, it was themselves. Most perfectly matched. True story. And so they decided to remarry after nine months from being divorced. And he put it this way, I did not know that my ex-wife had been the ideal counterpart for a marriage. I decided to give her another try and be more, listen, and be more tolerant of her. The ideal mate, ladies and gentlemen, might be sitting right there beside you with the person you're married. I paraphrase C.S. Lewis, great thinker, great thinker. You trust him on a lot of other stuff, you can trust his thoughts on this. He said, most people, when the feelings fade, discover that they want a new relationship, only to find that in the new relationship, the feelings begin to fade again. Do you marry a feeling or a person? If you marry a person, you have to nurture the relationship. If you marry a feeling, it will fade. You cannot keep a feeling alive. Feelings cannot stay alive on their own. James Dobson said this, if your marriage is boring, if it is stagnant, go back and relive some of the early memories. Christian counselors have, have taught this <clears throat> and have taught me this in helping other people. They said, if a couple is in crisis, talk to them about going back to some of the early, exciting moments they had, some of the common mutual celebrations they had. Whenever they have those mutual celebration moments, if they go back and begin to relive them, it gives them something to build on. It gives them something to start from. It gives them something to do. He said, talk about the, the banquet, the dinner, the park, wherever you shared some of those special times. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, she was asked if she ever considered divorce. She said, murder, yes, divorce, never. <laughs> Billy Graham said this about somebody that may sit here today and say, I'm chopped liver, I've messed up. Well, you don't have to stay that way. Listen to what he says. You can't change the past. The future doesn't need to copy the past, nor does God want it to be, no matter what your life has been till now. God wants to put your feet on a new path, a better path, His path. So I want to challenge you on something about making your decisions. John Wesley developed this as his four questions he would ask when he made a big decision. And we call it the Wesley Quadrilateral. Here it is, fill it out, it's very important information. Number one, what does Scripture say about it? I think that's important, and a lot of people aren't doing it, because many people leave God at the marriage altar whenever they get married. They'll never look at the Bible again, they never read a devotional for couples, they never go to church together, they never do anything like that together. And it's absolutely amazing what happens. And then ask the question, what does tradition say? Then ask, what does reason say? When I look at this from all four sides, and then the top, and then the bottom, what happens whenever I look at it from all these six angles? What is happening? And then what's experience say? What's my experience? What's the experience of my uncle, my aunt, my parents? What is all of this? Joseph is faced with a difficult decision. He's faced with a hard choice. And let me tell you this, life is hard. As others have said, choose your hard None of it's going to be easy. And so when Joseph added God into the equation, he went from just looking at the biology of this and just at the chemistry of this, and he brought in the divine part of this. 
And when theology came to bear on the biology and the chemistry of it all, he said, there is something that could be salvaged here. There is an assignment God is calling me to experience. And in my life, I'm going to be a story that is going to say you can overcome, and I'm going to be a stepdad. And across his congregation are many stepfathers right now. It's amazing to me that God looked down from heaven and said, I can put Jesus in any family. Hmm. Mary's righteous. Okay, what about Joe? Hmm. Joe is righteous. All right. There's my family. And he picks them. And Joseph was sleeping. Do you remember your dreams when you get up in the morning? If you do, say yes. Once in a while, I do. Pam and I were driving in a car a couple nights ago. We were driving in a car, and we were on this interstate, and we came to this ramp. We had to get on the ramp, and then it went into the water, and I realized we're on the wrong ramp. <laughs> Dumb dream. Why did I dream that? I don't even know why I dreamed that. If you have the gift of interpretation, please don't tell me. I don't even want to know. So we had to drive back and turn around and get back and all that kind of funny stuff. Joseph was dreaming, and when he had a dream, an angel spoke to him four times. You remember that, right? The angel spoke to him four different times, and the angel came to him and said, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, basically the angel said, fear not. Well, let me tell you this. If an angel says, fear not, that means because I'm getting ready to tell you something that can make you freaked out. Don't get mad, but, you ever said that? I don't want you to, I don't want you to, sit down, please, I'm getting ready to tell you something Angel says, fear not. Well, when the angel's saying fear not, well, what's the angel saying? Fear not to do what I'm about to tell you. Fear not because I'm here. Fear not because I have news from God. In other words, we're getting ready to take this game higher than you've ever imagined. We're going to stretch you into areas you've never been stretched. We're going to, and some of you, when you stood at the wedding, I just feel like I need to say this. Some of you, when you stood at the, at the uh, wedding altar, you never dreamed you would have, your story would be, a, we put, got our lives put back together later on. You didn't plan on that when you stood at the altar, right? But then life has happened, now you're saying, eh, do I want to put it back together or not? And you put it back, and you've had that. And the angel says to Joe, Joseph, it's okay, you need to go ahead and take Mary to be your wife. It's all right, because what is happening in her is something God has planned, God has prepared, and this is what's supposed to happen, so go ahead and let it happen. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And Joseph says, all right, all right. When I get to heaven, I want to meet Joseph. It'll be an honor to meet Mary, but I definitely want to meet Joseph. I want to meet Joseph because he was a righteous man. Who, when God tasked him with something that would have been extraordinary, not only did he say, fear not, you can take her, fear not, it's going to be okay. Fear not, you're going to be up to the task. Wait, God's going to live in my house? You know everything. And you're going to live in my house. It's one thing to think God knows everything, but when God says, yes, I'm going to take up room in your house, I'm going to live in one of the rooms in your house, man, game just changed, right? Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. Jesus sitting at the table. Jesus, would you return thanks, please? Jesus looks up and breaks the bread. Oh, my goodness. It would have been incredible. Now, I don't want to diminish the holiness of Christ. But your Bible, your Bible says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, and you read this on the second day of December, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
Bethlehem Christian School, they use that as their key verse, but it's in the Bible for all of us. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a powerful, powerful verse. Because that means he is going to see how life works for you and me so he can identify with us. So he allows himself to be this baby. He allows himself to be this little toddler. He allows himself to become a child. He allows himself to eventually become a teenager. He allows himself to experience all of these things you and I experience. This is absolutely amazing. This is why it was so cool at Palmerton to see the live infant sitting there in their nativity effort. It was beautiful to see that because it's just like Jesus would have been. Pretty amazing. So here's Jesus now. We're talking relationships. We've been talking Mary and Joseph. Now we're talking stepfather and son. And here's Jesus, and he's in the carpenter shop, and he's, he's looking at Joseph, and he's watching Joseph. I want you to indulge me just for a minute. Think of the many times Jesus heard the story of what we call Christmas. When he was born. Mom, can you tell me that again? Dad, can you tell me how I was born? All of, can you tell me about that? Other people might not believe him being divine. They would say of him, that is Joseph's son. In the Bible, read it. In the Bible, they would say, that's Joseph's son. But both Mary and Joseph believed the word from the angel, and Jesus was born into their home. In the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, any of you watch that every year? A few of you? Whether you want to or not? You watch that? George Bailey wonders what would have happened if he hadn't stayed in Bedford Falls. Remember? So he has this kind of out-of-body experience, really, of what it would be like if he had not lived there and hadn't been there, hadn't gone through things. And then you remember when he finally comes to, and he goes running back, Mary, Mary, and he goes back to the house, you know, broken down building alone, all that kind of stuff. He's running, you remember, running through the snow. Really, it seemed like he had messed up, but he's not. He's been transformed, and he goes running through. Well, what would have happened if, if Joseph had divorced Mary? Uh, would there have been a Bethlehem? Would there have been a root of David? Joseph was the line through which Jesus would fulfill that passage through Joseph. He chose, though he had the grounds for crashing and burning this home, to say, I'm going to go ahead and make it work because he gave the God factor equal time in his thinking. So think about Jesus. When he grows then and begins to share the story about the prodigal son, Joseph has other children. Joseph and Mary raised several more children after Jesus. Is it possible Jesus saw this model from Joseph raising a prodigal in his own home? The Bible doesn't tell us. But could it have been? Could it have been when Jesus taught his disciples about humility that he was talking about his mother and about Joseph you need to be like that is it possible when Jesus came to a point in his own life 
when he felt like he was really being abused, which he would be, that he would say, when you pray, pray this, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, because he knew what Joseph felt in his heart and what he had said. Is it possible that the story of the birth from Mary and Joseph taught him about surrender? Mary said, may it be to me as you have spoken. Joseph wanted to quietly put her away, but says, nope, I'll take her as my wife since you've said. And in these moments, he quietly says, okay. And Jesus would say, not my will, but your will be done. Is it possible he learned that from his parents? He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. They said yes. In heaven, he said yes, and he became an infant in her. And it provides salvation and hope for everybody. And no matter how broken or messy your life may have been up to this moment, there is a God who loves you. There is a Christ who came to earth for you. And he will help you figure it out. Will you let him? Will you let him? If you'll let him, his power, the God factor, will help you make it. Lord, I don't even know how you're going to use this message because I never know. But I pray you would be pleased to do it in a way that brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.